I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. One of the really fun things that Dave Campbell and I did this year in Inside Sports, Dave's the producer of the show, is we said, let's try and get some play-by-play uh, people on the show from, from other leagues besides the NHL. We obviously, you know, usually talk a lot of hockey on the show. So we had some uh, some voices from the NFL, from the NBA, from Major League Baseball. And one of those, Jesse Agler, who calls the games for the San Diego Padres. And he had a really unique experience. He was calling a game in San Diego Stadium, but it wasn't the game that was being played on the field behind him. It was the Padres game being played in another market. He tweeted about it back in October. During the playoffs a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, obviously in 2020, the world is upside down and everything like that. So uh, I'm broadcasting the the Padre game, which was taking place against the Dodgers in Arlington, Texas, uh, from our booth at Petco Park, because that's where we broadcast road games all year in San Diego. We're all connected there. You know, that's that's the easiest place to do it. So I'm broadcasting the Padre-Dodger game, which is taking place in Texas from San Diego at the very same time that the Yankees and the Rays were playing a game in San Diego. So I was able to sort of look out my booth and watch the Yankees and the Rays while attempting to broadcast the Padres and the Dodgers off television monitors uh, in that ballpark. It was very surreal, and I think uh, the tweet said something along the lines of uh, peak 2020, and it certainly was. Yeah, I, I retweeted that video if, if people want to check it out. And, and I love the Red Deer reference, buddy. Like, either you know somebody there or you quickly check the map of Alberta. <laughs> uh, the, the great the great Randy Moeller, uh, an old oh. uh, co-worker of mine with the Florida Panthers. Yeah, Red Deer Randy, yeah. Right on. That, that's good to hear. Was, was it ever, uh, like, did anything ever catch you off guard when you were calling that the games and there was another game going on behind you? Like, you heard something and were you ever wondering, wait, was that in my... Your uh, headpiece, or was that uh, happening behind me? <laughs> <laughs> luckily, uh, lu- you know, I, I was expecting that. Honestly, I was worried about that. I was concerned about that. Uh, but luckily enough, uh, our equipment was uh, very high fidelity, so I never actually, you know, it's very easy, oddly, to forget about the Yankee-Tampa game going on, and I was able to sort of, uh, you know, stay focused on the task at hand. Also, with the different times that the games were starting. That game was mostly over by the time we started most nights, but it was definitely one of the most uh, surreal things I've ever experienced. How did you like calling it off a monitor? Because usually you'd be high above home, like behind home plate, right? As opposed to getting our traditional TV view. Yeah, it was a challenge. You know, I mean, it's something we did all season. So, you know, the, the Padres and every other major league team, I guess, except the Cardinals played 30 regular season games this year uh, on the road. And, and so for all 30 of those games, we, we did it off television. They set us up about as well as I think we could ever be set up, which was that we had one monitor that had the, the feed that everybody sees at home, you know, the normal television broadcast. And we had another monitor that showed us a couple of different angles, including one that sort of kind of mostly simulated what we would normally see, you know, from a booth perspective, kind of a high home look, it's called. Uh, so basically imagine a camera in the first row of the upper deck behind home plate. So we were able to see a defensive shift, 
we're able to see, you know, where the outfielders were, that kind of thing. Um, if there were multiple guys on base, we were able to keep track of them that way. So, you know, we were very concerned about it going in. Um, it went about as well as it could. I, I hope personally that it's not something, you know, that, that becomes permanent moving forward. But, you know, look, in, in 2020, everybody's trying to get used to a new normal. Everybody's uh, doing Zooms and working remotely, you know, everything we have to do to get through our, our jobs, whatever those may be. So this kind of falls into that category. I had a listener named Michael call in earlier, and he suggested a question, so I got to I got to do it. When you are watching baseball, and I assume he meant not working, not working a game, do you prefer to watch on TV or watch in person if you had a choice? Um, I, I mean, I'm a huge baseball fan. I have been since I was a little kid. I, I love going to games. I love watching games on TV. I, I mean, look, as a professional, and this is maybe a boring answer, Michael. I apologize, but as a professional. You know, when I, when I watch a game on TV now, I sort of am more locked into the announcers and what they're doing and what they're saying and maybe what they're not saying, you know, than I am on, on anything else. Like, that's kind of the way my brain is now working because I'm trying to pick up little things that I like or maybe I don't like and I say, oh, I want to do that or I don't want to do this, you know, when it comes to, to my own game call. But I, I think it's so important to go to games in person, and I have sort of a rule for myself. During normal seasons, you know, when we're traveling with the team and it's 162 games, um, you know, if we're in a city, and it usually happens once or twice a year, if we're in a city and we have a day off, but the host team is playing a game. So, for instance, last year we were in Pittsburgh. Uh, we had an off day in Pittsburgh, and the Pirates were hosting. Who were they hosting? It doesn't matter, I guess. They're, they're hosting a team, White Sox, I think. And I said, I'm going to go to the game that day. I'm going to get a beer. I'm going to get a hot dog or some nachos, something like that, and just sort of have that normal fan experience to remind myself that this is a leisure activity. You know, it's not just work, um, because for us, obviously, it becomes work. Um, but to remind myself that, hey, this is what a fan is experiencing when they're at the game. This is how fans are, are involved and sort of committed to this sport um, and any other sport. So um, I, I think that's a really important thing to do. So I love doing that once or twice a year when the schedule allows. Um, but look, I mean, I think like most people who end up working in this business and read, I'm sure you're the same. I'm a huge sports fan. I mean, you can put me in front of a TV or a radio or in a seat at any game, whether it's NHL, NBA, NFL, CFL, whatever. You know, I'm going to enjoy it. I, I love sports. I love watching sports. I love attending sports. I love listening to sports. And uh, that's that's why I've committed my life to broadcasting sports. See, you're hitting all the right notes. You're a good storyteller. You've dropped Red Deer in there, and now you drop the Canadian Football League reference in there. Like, you're hitting for I the cycle another, here, I buddy. another great connection. So, you know, I've worked with so many wonderful people over the years. So I said Randy Moeller is one of my favorite humans on earth. He's from Red Deer. I, I will admit I never heard of Red Deer before I met Randy. And then when I, I worked for the Miami Dolphins, I got the opportunity to broadcast alongside John Kinjemi, who won a couple of Grey Cups in, in Toronto with the Argos. So my, my love and appreciation for the CFL stemmed from my personal relationship with him. So um, that, that's the cool thing about these jobs. You get to know so many different people from so many uh, different walks of life who have had so many different experiences, and you, you really learn to appreciate everything that they bring to the sports table. Oh, that is awesome. Jesse, I, I mentioned when we were introing you, I mean, Dave Campbell, the producer of the show, we've we've thrown a few fish hooks out there and had some nibbles with play-by-play with -play guys, and and uh, I, I just find that that path so interesting, and, and it's such a... You know, it's the job that becomes so linked to so many moments in a team's history, whether they're ups or downs. And it's, it's you know, to get to one of the, I guess, 122 jobs that there are at the highest level in this in this continent is pretty cool. So before Padres, even before Florida Panthers, where did it, where did it start for you? Were you a little kid calling games off the TV when you were eight? Or did this come a little later in life? What was that journey? No. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that was exactly it. I might have been younger than eight, honestly. That's, that's usually the age I say when I'm telling the story, but when I really sit down and think about it, I might have been six. Um, you know, I mean, ever since I, I remember watching, it started with baseball, um, you know, on, on television, I was so fascinated by the announcers. And I loved playing when I was growing up. I played every sport. You know, I grew up in South Florida, um, so I, I even played roller hockey. I played football on the street. I played basketball with my friends in the driveway. Uh, we played baseball every chance we got. Uh, you know, e- everything that was available to me, I played. But baseball was sort of always the first love. And, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as far back, literally, as I can remember, I was fascinated by the announcers. Um, and, and it's something that I wanted to do. So through high school, I had internships, and I called games on a, on a pirate high school radio station. I went to a University of Miami. Uh, because I knew they had a robust sports program at the student radio station. Um, and I immediately graduated and two days later drove to Kansas to broadcast summer league baseball that year. I came back and I you know, worked the connections that I had made while I was in college to start working at a radio station in Miami. That led to the Panther opportunity, which led to an opportunity with the Marlins, which eventually led to an opportunity with the Dolphins, which in a weird way eventually led to an opportunity with the Padres, uh, where I just completed my seventh season. So um, as I said, this is all I've ever wanted to do. And um, I I feel so fortunate and and lucky because luck is such a huge part of it uh, that that I've been able to make it to where I've made it so far. Uh, well, and you dropped in there that you were on a pirate high school radio station, so you were kind of like Christian Slater and pump up the volume. <laughs> He's much better looking. But, yeah, like, uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was one of those situations where uh, I had one friend who was very technically inclined in high school, and they used to have a radio station. They no longer did. And we said, hey, let's broadcast some games. And he was able to rig something together that, you know, we could broadcast the high school football games on our senior year where – um, as long as you were in the stadium or the parking lot of our high school, you could hear it. Beyond that, you couldn't. So we, we felt pretty good about not getting caught, um, you know, in, in terms of pirating the signal from the local university. But, um, yeah, it was just sort of anything to get a microphone in my hand. And uh, here we are. Uh, what's the – well, tell, tell me about your experience with hockey. Obviously, you're, you're talking in a, in a hockey-mad market here. So tell us about doing Panther stuff and maybe anything else you, you did ice-related along the way. Well, that, that was mostly it. I mean, I, I kind of fell in love with hockey in the early 90s, um, you know, when I was 10, 11 years old. Again, growing up in South Florida, the, the Panthers' first season was 93. Um, so I got into that. Obviously, they made the run to the Cup where they lost to the Avalanche a couple of years later. But that was really one of those times where even though they lost in the final, they captivated the imagination of a lot of people, particularly at my age, I guess. Kind of impressionable adolescents, you know, sports fanatics. Um, the, the way they ran through that playoff, I can still rattle off names of guys on that Panther team. I can tell you about Brian Scrudland being the, pan, uh, the captain. I can tell you about Ray Shepard being a 30-goal scorer for all those different teams that he was, John Van Beesbrook and Nett. Like those guys at Jovanovski, they were, they were so critical to us um, as fans. And, you know, I liked that team so much, those early 90s Penguin teams. Um, I'm sorry to be leaving out Canada here, but they captured my imagination um, with uh, Lemieux and Yager and Ron Francis. And again, I could go on and on the Samuelsons. Um, and, and so it was kind of fun in those early 90s Rangers team, too, and sort of seeing the Rangers win it all for the first time uh, in forever in 94. My dad had grown up a Ranger fan in New York, and um, you know, I, I think he wasn't even born the previous time they'd won a cup. So I got into that. I remember when the Red Wings and the Avalanche had their great rivalry. I was kind of obsessed with it. So um, I, I never intended to work in hockey. I still don't think I would be anything of a hockey play-by-play guy. It's just too – my brain doesn't work that way. I'm so in awe of the guys who can do hockey play-by-play. Um, I work with one in San Diego, uh, Don Orsillo, who's with the Red Sox forever. He was an AHL announcer, I think, for like 10 years. 
um, you know, before he, he got at the Red Sox job, which eventually led him to San Diego. Uh, but when I first started working professionally, I had the opportunity to uh, basically fall into being the pre- and post-game host for the Panthers coming out of the lockout. I guess it was 05, 06. And Great, uh, yeah. he was pretty good. They didn't make the playoffs, but they were a pretty good team. And um, uh, Steve Goldstein, who's now the television voice of the Panthers, who's just a brilliant announcer, um, was entering his first year as the radio play-by-play guy at the time. He had been doing pre and post um, for the Panthers for a lot of years before that. I, I impressed him, I guess, kind of accidentally. He saw that I took my work very, very seriously, um, and he basically presented me with this opportunity to take over for him doing the pre and post game and the intermission reports for the Panther broadcast. I did that for a couple of seasons. Um, I tweeted about it yesterday with Mike Emmerich's retirement. I, I got the opportunity to, to interview Doc, one of my very first games, um, and, and just sort of how meaningful that was to me. I love the sport. I really, really do. Like I said, I, I don't think I have the chops to be a hockey play-by-play guy, um, but I love it so much. Uh, the, the Padres, who I work for now, we do spring training in the Phoenix area. So every February and March when I'm there, I go to at least three or four Coyote games um, just to be able to sort of, uh, you know, get into the arena and, and watch um, the action because it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful sport. And um, I, like I said, I would love to be able to work in hockey, but I just I have the, the self-awareness, I guess, to know that I, I don't think my brain is fast enough uh, to be able to do hockey play by play. It's a remarkable thing those guys can do. Jesse, we're getting some texts here. People are enjoying listening to you. And Dirk uh, down in Cochrane, Alberta, closer to Calgary, um, bringing up the rats. So you were there when the rats were thrown on the ice then for the Panthers. Or you were, you were yes. watching as a, as a teen probably? Uh, I, let's see. It was 96. So, yeah, it was 14. Um, <laughs> and uh, that captivated our imagination big time. It was fun. You know, I mean, it was like, you know, I think Scott Mellenby started that, if I recall, to throw another name out there. Uh, the, the whole story was that there was a rat in the, in the dressing room one day, a live rat. He took his stick, and he did what you do with a rat where it's not supposed to be, I guess. <laughs> and uh, that turned into the whole thing down there. And I understand certainly how that upset sort of the, the hockey universe, and it was delaying games, and there's that famous image of Patrick Waugh sort of back skating into his net during the finals so that he wasn't pelted with rubber rats coming down from old Miami arena. But, um, you know, I think for that market in that time, for a franchise that was newly born, it was exactly what was needed in order to capture our imaginations, as I said. And um, I, I still have, I, I, I really, it's one of my fondest memories as a fan, you know, that run that they had through the playoffs that year. And it was almost incidental, this sounds so weird, but it was almost incidental that they lost. To the, to the avalanche at the end of the day because the run that they had through the Eastern Conference was so enjoyable. I remember they held a rally at the arena after the final, even though they lost. It was just kind of an appreciation rally. And my dad took my friend and I down there. We lived about an hour away, and he took us down there. It was just a way to say thank you to the team, to cheer on the team one more time, and uh, it, was, it was a very, very special uh, spring. Jesse Aguilar, San Diego Padres play-by-play voice joining us tonight on Inside Sports. You're incredibly generous with your time, so I'll just keep it to one or two more here because I'm, I'm having a blast listening to you. Padres, you mentioned seven seasons. This was the first time in the postseason. You know, they, they had some years where down near a 400 winning percentage. Uh, but do you have a, and I hate to put you on the spot, do you have a most memorable call or, or a, a favorite game that you got to call with the Padres? Yeah, it's from this year, and and thankfully, like you said, in the playoffs and playing meaningful baseball late in the season. Um, When I was asked this question prior to this season, I always said uh, it was when Matt Kemp hit for the first cycle in Padre history, uh, which was at Coors Field in, I think, I want to say 2015. 
I happened to be on the TV call that night, and it was really the first time in my career that I got the opportunity to call something historic. The Padres had never had a cycle before. It was one of those weird anomalies, you know, in sports. It was like, how have they never had a cycle? It doesn't make any sense. Um, but it was kind of neat, kind of fun, kind of exciting. But, you know, this year um, they, they did a lot of special stuff. But I think the, the second game of their playoff series against St. Louis this year, they came back. It was one of the most remarkable games of any sport I've ever watched in my life. I think the final score is 11-9, 11-7, something like that. But, you know, they kind of had their backs against the wall in the postseason. They came from behind dramatically with big home runs. Um, I had the opportunity to call a couple of those home runs, probably one of the ones from Will Myers, and he hit two in the game. Uh, that I think it put them ahead in the sixth inning or the seventh inning uh, was, was the one where I thought, oh, my goodness, like that's, that's the most special thing I've ever had the chance to be behind the microphone for. Um, the, the cool thing about working for the Padres right now is that it, it seems like there are going to be a lot more moments like that for a lot of years. They are as young and as exciting and as fun as exists, I think, in MLB right now, and they're only going to get better and better. And, you know, I, I think about myself as that 13-, 14-year-old kid watching the Panthers, you know, make that run through. And, and there's going to be kids, you know, here in San Diego who have never seen a good Padre team before who are going to be able to have that experience. And, and that will make them fans for life, and that's, that's such a fun thing. That's really what it's all about. Well, that turned out to be a great interview. Jesse Agler, play-by-play voice of the San Diego Padres. Sometimes people will ask me, "What, Reed, what's the favorite thing about your job? And I like a lot of things about this job. It's a really cool job. I love doing it. But my absolute favorite thing is just conducting interviews, just getting to talk to people in the sports world, sometimes outside the sports world, but just getting to, to interview people give them a chance to tell their stories, connect with them, and hopefully connect with you as well. So that's why it was really fun putting together this show tonight, Best of Inside Sports 2020 edition, because I got to go back and re-listen to a bunch of interviews and be reminded some of the people we talked to and cool stories that we told. And we're going to keep doing that in the last half hour with two uh, two really good ones. We're going to have a little bit from Todd McFarlane. We had a, a three-part feature with him in May, Todd McFarlane, a former member of the Edmonton Investors Group, used to draw Spider-Man, invented uh, or created the, the character Spawn. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. He's going to talk about designing that flying oil drop jersey that the Oilers had. And also, this guy's always fun, Henry Burris. Uh, we spoke to him after he found out he was going into the CFL Hall of Fame. All ahead on the best of insights. He's one sports. of the all-time great players in the history of the Canadian Football League, one of the all-time great personalities as well. And in July, he found out he's going into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. Talk to Henry Burse. Oh, I'm on cloud nine, Reed. I mean, I'm feeling great right now to to be celebrating an honor that was beyond my wildest dreams, big man. <laughs> well, congratulations. It's well-deserved. You had an awesome career. You were always exciting to watch. Uh, you know, for Edmonton fans, you were always in the wrong uniform, but I, I think uh, I think they respected you. That's why, like I, I've, I've told you this in the past, Henry, that's why they booed you so much, because they knew that you could go out there and throw a long bomb and put points <laughs> on the board the other way. <laughs> well, hey, I was trying to be like that guy, the number one, uh, you know, that when you talk 
talk about uh, numbers retired and and players retired in Eskimo history. Number one was a guy I looked up to even when he played for the Eskimos in Warren Moon, and I always tried to emulate his game. You know, with my arm and and my arm and, and mental abilities, and and that's a tough one to live up to. But hey, it was definitely one heck of a standard to try to achieve. Well, I, I want to. You mentioned mental abilities. I definitely want to ask you about mental toughness and and and, and the longevity. But I have to ask you about the video where you found out that you were going to be going into the Hall of Fame. I, I got to admit, I was tearing up watching it. Damon Allen was involved. It, it was so well done. And you were caught a little by surprise. Your family uh, played, a, played a part in getting all that done. Yeah, I don't know how. Okay, now, I, I learned some new things about myself and my, and my pecking order in the family where my kids knew since February, as well as my wife did. And yeah, my wife does a great job of keeping secrets. But whenever I try to keep a secret about my wife and her birthday, the kids would never help me out. But now they hold on to something for five months. So now I know I'm the, the lowest on the totem pole in this pecking order here in this house. But the thing is, I mean, I know everything was set up for uh, for football week, for CFL football week in Toronto at the end of March. But, of course, with COVID, everything was uh, basically canceled and, and we had to try to improv and come up with something new. But, the you know, them taping that video of Damon Allen, a guy who I first spoke with uh, when a man named Steve Goldman told me, hey, here's a couple of guys I want you to get in touch with, being Damon Allen and Matt Dunnigan. And the first guy I spoke with when I came to Canada as a rookie was Damon Allen. And now here I am, the first guy that I hear from when I'm going into the Hall of Fame being inducted was Damon Allen. And for him to do the video the way he did it, saying a, a young kid from California, not drafted in the NFL, made his home in Alberta, and now permanently lives in Canada, and a kid from Oklahoma did the same thing, undrafted in the NFL, made his home in Alberta to start his career, and ended up making his home in Canada. And then to have Mark DeNoble come on following that, and he's like the Sandman. When you see him, you know it's real. And you know any doubts, he's putting it to bed. And when I saw him, the tears just started to flow. But to be able to enjoy that moment with my wife, with my kids, the three people who sacrificed more than anybody, heard dad get booed, saw dad get cut, saw dad get traded, have been through all the ups and downs, and they've remained being themselves and never cried and, and whined. But they allowed daddy to play this game for 18 years, and they've been by my side forever. So to be able to experience that moment with them and then the emotions that poured out, I mean, it showed you just truly how phenomenal and humbled and honored I am to be in this distinguished club now. That's such a, a great story. I, I love how you tell that. And you've already mentioned Warren Moon. You mentioned Damon Allen. And I think that's what I want to set you up for here, Henry, is the importance of having idols, the importance of having mentors, and the importance of having someone who might even be a competitor in, in the world of pro sports being willing to, you know, still... I don't know if take you under your under the, under his wing is is the right word, but making sure that the, the torch is is being passed, and you clearly had had people do that, and people you you looked up to along the way, probably going back to the first time you ever held the football as a little guy. Oh, 1,000%, because as a player, that's all you ever want to do as far as you start out as that kid in the backyard saying, okay, here I am, I'm Warren Moon, I'm Randall Cunningham, I'm Damon Allen, and I'm throwing it to whomever the receiver might be, but it's all about you doing it just as that quarterback did it in that particular game that you just watched. And and I'm thankful I was able to be a part of some of those memories because now it's time for me to hand the baton off to the next generation of young kids that are watching Henry Burris throw the second and 25 pass to Greg Ellingson or Henry Burris throw 
a game-winning touchdown pass to Ernest Jackson in overtime that he bobbled, you know, Ottawa fans' hearts into the end zone and gave us almost all a heart attack and, and that great cup against Calgary. But kids are now reenacting that. And just to know that parents are sending me videos via social media just to show that their kids are, are reenacting those moments, I mean, that causes emotions because now I'm that guy who's able to help create those memories and, and highlights for fans to talk about and carry on as kids to, to aspire to be something or be involved in something for years to come. And that's what it's all about. You know, it's not about the things that you accomplish. It's about accomplishing the things, but also making an impression on others and also making an impact on others with the stage that we've been given. And I made sure I, I definitely took full advantage of it because I want to see kids continue this great game on and living out their dreams and having those passions and playing in the CFL one day because look at what the CFL has done for guys like myself. And now I get to be a part of a club of guys that have continued to do that same thing and look to be outward, be extroverts and making sure we can continue to make this game the best that it is, the best on the planet. And we can continue to see guys break our records and continue to pack up this uh, Canadian Football Hall of Fame with even more faces that were either born here in Canada or abroad. Yeah, well well said. And I, and I love how you say that, how parents will, will you know, share their, their videos or, you know, a youngster wants to be the next Henry Burris. And you're, you're in, a, in a cool position because you get to interact with people, you get to have fans and youngsters come up, up to you. I'm, I'm going to throw this one at you, Henry. You know, if, uh, if, if, if a kid comes up to you and says, Henry, I, I want to be a quarterback, I want to be like you, your interaction with that young person might be two minutes. It might be 30 seconds. You don't have time to teach him how to break down an offense or go over his throwing motion necessarily. What do you hope to say sometimes in limited interactions to, to inspire somebody if you can? Well, I keep it simple by saying if a small, snotty-nosed, gap-toothed kid from Oklahoma who, you know, really wasn't the best at, you know, really anything compared to the skills that everybody else had, but what I did was I continued to believe and I worked my butt off, and now my dreams came true. And even when people said I couldn't, I use that as fire to say, yes, I could, and watch me go do this. Only person who could ever say you can't is yourself. And if you say you can't, then you allow those people to win. So let's make sure those bookers don't win. Let's make sure you're the one who, at the end of the day, has the big smile on your face. Because those people who said you couldn't get it done, they, they'll be telling everybody that you were their best friend and how much you used to hang out when you actually do get it done. So never believe their hype. Go out there and make them fans because that's what they truly are underneath. But they're just seeing if you really want it. Hall of Famer Henry Burris joining us tonight on Inside Sports. I, I was watching that Damon Allen video. Uh, were you number 16 or something when you came into the league? I have to, I have to be honest. I, I have no memory of you wearing a, a number that high. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was number six. And, and, and again, uh, yeah, for me, I was always number 10. I was always number, uh, I was number 12 in my All-Star game. And then I was 14 at Temple, so it seemed like I could only continue to go up two, uh, two jersey points with each uh, jersey I was given. So I went to 16, but I became number one once I went to Saskatchewan. The fans there voted on what my number would be. And, uh, yeah, they, they chose number one. I said number one or number 10, and that's what they chose. And I was thankful for that. And uh, it continued to be something that stuck with me. But, again, when I, once they did vote number one, guess where my mind went? To that guy on the wall in Edmonton, Warren Moon, who also wore number one. Yeah, that's all. I, I never do that. I, I, I honestly didn't remember any other number, and I, I don't think you'd ever told me that story about the fans voting in Saskatchewan before. That, that is pretty cool. Okay, <laughs> so, I mean, you had a long career. Uh, you know, you got to play for, for Calgary, Saskatchewan, Hamilton, Ottawa. You had a lot of great seasons, and 
and you went into every stadium as a visitor at some point. So, so let me ask you this. Be, I'm not going to ask you which was the, the hardest stadium to play in because they're all challenging. But specifically about Commonwealth or Edmonton, uh, what were some of the, the, the challenges about being a visiting player in this city? Oh, man, Edmonton's tough because they've always had great teams. And, you know, you always know when you go into the city of champions, there's that aura of of great quarterbacking that's always existed in the city in Edmonton. So you knew whenever you were playing, and I always called you guys the the, the team John Deere, uh, but whenever you played Edmonton, you always knew that on the opposite sideline was going to be one outstanding gunslinger. But I also knew that the quarterback gods were watching over the Edmonton Eskimos because Look at how many years you guys have had amazing quarterbacks with War Moon, Tom Wilkinson, up until, of course, you guys had, uh, uh, of course, Danny Mack, and and uh, you had you know Coach K. Stevenson back in the day. You had David Archer, and there were so many great quarterbacks that I remember who used to don those colors. And of course, the guy that I used to go hand in hand with, uh, and we had a lot of Labor Day battles was, of course, uh, Ricky Ray and Jason Moss. And so. You always know when you stepped in that stadium, you were facing another great quarterback on the opposite sideline. Plus, just the aura of other great quarterbacks were always watching down over you with all the retired greats and their numbers that circled that stadium there at Commonwealth. But you knew also that when you're playing the Battle of Alberta, as I did for so many years with Calgary, and also when I played for Saskatchewan, knowing you were playing against a great Edmonton Eskimo team, you had to bring your A game because some guy, a number of guys like A.J. Gass and a number of great players that we used to play against and Senior Mobley, like these guys were imposing figures out there on the opposite side of the field, but you had to bring your A game to get the job done. If not, they were going to embarrass you in that house. And and we won some and we, don't, and we lost some, but you know, it all came down to the final few seconds, regardless of how good or bad either team was it was always a fight to the finish and it was always a great atmosphere because i remember the days where i think one year we had uh close to sixty thousand people at a labor day game on the friday night like to me there was no better rivalry than playing on the monday and then the friday night because it used to be friday night up in in commonwealth if i'm correct yep. and uh but yeah it was just a couple of days apart even though your body was sore you brought your a game because all i the one thing i hate to hear was for high school football because you know you're, nothing's going good for you as far as in that case but the fans were great the fans were outstanding and just to be able to play in that city in the city of champions you knew there was something special always when you stepped on that major stage that was our conversation with Henry Burris back in July when he found out he was going into the CFL Hall of Fame, the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. Best of Inside Sports, looking back on some of our top segments from 2020, Todd McFarlane. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. On the flying oil drop when we get back. It was so cool in May to do a three-part interview with Todd McFarlane, the guy who splashed into fame with his take on Spider-Man in uh, the 1990s, and he later became a member of the Edmonton Investors Group. And while he was in EIG, he designed the Oilers' flying oil drop third jersey. I'll tell you how that came about. We were, I, I was up in Edmonton. It, it may have been, I don't remember, but it may have been during the Wayne Gretzky retirement ceremonies. 
And I was up in the office and I saw the book where they were talking about doing a third jersey. Now, they were hesitant. They, were, they didn't want to grab, jump on the bandwagon. Not all the teams were doing it at that point. And, and uh, you know, Kevin Lowe, who was, who was in management, was like, eh. You know, he thought it was a, a, too much of a gimmick. Uh, but I saw they had spent some money on some designs, right? And I saw the designs. And I don't know if you remember the Kings did this one. They used to call it the Burger King uh, jersey. And it was like a big giant king on it. And then they did these fades. Remember they were doing these fades and all this other silly stuff on it. Uh, the, the, the Phoenix one had like a gecko and cactuses on it. It was ridiculous. Uh, and, the, and the Tampa Bay had the, you know, looked like raining. It was raining on your jersey. It was just silly. But the fade, I just, I, I looked at it and I went, I don't, guys, I don't get why nobody's doing a hockey jersey. We're playing hockey. This is hockey. Like, why do we keep doing what to me look like sort of Tour de France shirts, right? I get it. I get that sort of the hip design for other sports, not for hockey. So I, I convinced them. I go, look, it, let me just give you some designs. I'll do it for free. Because they'd spend, they go, well, we don't have a budget. We spend a lot of money on this Madison Avenue design from New York. And I went, duh, obviously they don't like hockey. Uh, let, me, let me give you some designs. And oh, by the way, just so you guys know in advance, it's going to be old school. I'm going old school. It's going to be, which is why I even went to the tie downs on the neck because nobody was doing that at that time, right? Where well, I just thought it was super cool. Like that, that to me was all those hockey cards I had as a kid. Big stripes, you know, at the bottom, big stripes on the arms, straight. Let's, let me also argue straight stripes because at that point, even like the Flames. You know, they were doing these diagonal stripes. Like, like what is that, right? So, I, and I decided that I wanted to use colors that were super popular and recognizable. So when you saw the jersey with your own eyes, to me, I called it like the Dallas Cowboy colors, right? But it, when you saw it on TV, I knew that the, that the Navy would blow out to black. But then it, that's okay, because then it'd be like black and white and silver. But, and then that's the Raiders and the Yankees, and those are super popular colors. Um, and so I, I sort of started that premise. And then I just came up with the design and started going through the, literally going through the, the record books and finding, finding numbers that were relevant to the history and then trying to come up with a design that was big and strong and bold. And, and, and to me, having angles and points, that's always, that's always bold. Let me, let me tell you from my perspective what, what a strong logo is. A strong logo is a logo that anybody will wear regardless of the sport, right? So when you look at that, that wheel and that wing for the Detroit Red Wings, it doesn't say hockey. There's no hockey puck. There's no hockey stick. There's none of that. A lot of the minor league teams in the AHL and the IHL, everything always had a hockey stick on it. Like instead of being the polar bears, you, like in making a cool polar bear, they always have to have them biting or holding a stick. Like stop it. Stop it. You're limiting who you're limiting. Like the Boston Bruins is a bee with the spokes on it, right? It's just, it's just a classic cool look. So I, I wanted to just do something that was a design that anybody – you put that design on a white or black shirt or navy shirt, anybody anywhere would wear it. Because again, at that time, 
because I lived here in Phoenix. They had a third jersey, and if you remember, it was the coyote, and they put it in the dark green, and down at the bottom it was tan, like the desert, and they put cactus, and they put they put like uh, uh, geckos, which are which are little lizards on it, and and all I can remember was sitting there going, "So you're telling me? I just want to I just want to be clear. Whoever designed this, and I don't know who it was, but you think some dude from Brooklyn wakes up someday and he turns to his wife, he's a butcher or whatever he is, and he goes, "Honey, it's my birthday coming up, and you know what I need." I need me one of them jerseys, one of them hockey jerseys. I don't even play hockey, but I need me one of them hockey jerseys. And it's got like, you know, one of them little geckos, got a gecko on it. And it's got them, like one of them cactus on it. Cause I want to walk down the street of Staten Island and the boroughs so that I look like a stone. What are you talking about? That guy will basically be ostracized for the rest of his natural life. Right. But you put something that's got blades on it and it's got black color on it and it looks badass it got a big gear on it that guy in brooklyn could wear that so that was sort of the big the big thought and then and then i i, I drew that and and then i the shoulder patch and i just said hey those are my only two designs one goes on the shoulder and one goes on the chest you pick my my preference would be the one with the blades go on the chest but you know what you guys make make it so did i create eight or ten of them yeah but i learned long ago never show your eighth best drawing to somebody in a suit because they will always pick it. So, <laughs> all, so you do eight drawings yourself, you pick your favorite two, and then you show those because at worst, they're going to pick your second favorite. Um, and anyways, they, they, ended up, they ended up going, huh, not bad. And they had to take it up. And Kevin, Kevin Law, I remember uh, 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 sort of coming saying, you know what, I was against it, but I saw that you used the, the history of the the team and the stats and and you you try to pay tribute to things so we're gonna we're gonna let this thing go and I even remember the day that they announced it and they brought it out because I was in Edmonton that day uh, we had a couple of the players were sitting in the back room and I forget where we uh, unveiled it but you know we did this big production like a Vegas production with dry ice and whatever and the kids were gonna have to get the players were gonna have to get dressed and come out in it. And up till literally five minutes until that happened, nobody knew what the design was, not even like the players for sure, right? And so the only thing they knew was, hey, this, the guy designing it draws Spawn and he does these sort of violent comic books. And he lives in Phoenix where they have like geckos and cactus on their jerseys and hockey. And they thought this thing was going to be an abortion, right? And uh, I'll never forget the comment that the, the couple of them were sitting in the locker room and they finally got to open the box and they pulled it out. And it just goes to show you how young hockey players were, right? And still are. That they opened it and they went, oh my God, that's cool. I'm not going to look stupid to my mom, right? <laughs> so not my wife, not my girlfriend. She was like, I'm not going to look like an idiot to mama. So uh, that just shows that these there's a lot of 18 19 year old kids playing hockey uh anyway and they put it on we came out we we showed it off and th and then like three hours later they opened up all the sports outlets that and the stores you could buy it and by seven o'clock that night i went to a game and half the arena had that jersey yeah. and i went oh my gosh this thing might work
show. Todd McFarlane, absolutely. I'll always remember talking to him. I'll always remember everything we had on the show tonight, some of our best segments in 2020 here on Inside Sports. The producer of the show is Dave Campbell. My name is Reed Wilkins. Thanks for listening. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad.